When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Wednesday episode of the Transfer Window. And you know what that means? Your questions answered. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are our Transfer Market Insiders and Pundits Extraordinaire, Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. On today's Transfer Podcast, you ask... Are Manchester United getting it the wrong way round if they appoint Ole Gunnar Solskjaer before a director of football? Why did Maurizio Pochettino's agents allow him to sign a five-year contract in May when they should have known Zizou was on his way out of Real Madrid? And why on earth has Rui Faria gone to Qatar? Is he just another grasping for the Emir's cash? We've had some excellent questions come in, um, but the one that I found most entertaining was from at Pip Forever One. Uh, very fulsome in his praise and also in, well, let's just, let me just read it out. Even though you're a I have to admit your podcasts are wonderful. One of the best around. Very informative, intelligent and brilliantly put together. And I say that with gritted teeth. Now, I should add, that was about Duncan, not about me or Ian. Uh, well, you know, I think um, Duncan has uh, made as many friends on the podcast as he may have done enemies with regard to Liverpool fans. So the fact that um, our listener is a Liverpool fan but loves the podcast is, is an absolute glowing tribute to, to Dr Duncan Castle. So I think that's the way we'll take it. Abusing and amusing all in one go. It uh, doesn't happen very often. Thanks for that. At Pip Forever One gave us a good laugh at the weekend. Um, now we go on to a question from at Benny Walsh 5. He said, is appointing a director of football at Manchester United and telling him we've already got the coach arse about face? It's a good, uh, quite a good Scottish phrase, that isn't it? Arse about face. Um, I don't think it is uh, actually um, because. If you have uh, already have uh, a structure, and by that I mean a sort of philosophy and uh, a coaching team in place who are successful, but the club decides that they want to augment um, the staff and give more help to the manager in particular, the head coach, um, with regards to recruitment. And remember, um, a technical director, sport director, whatever you want to call it, also can have um, a big influence in the academy and the and the, the younger teams coming through. So it's not all just about recruiting new players for the club or selling players on. So I don't I don't think there is a, a sort of retrograde notion to this in terms of um, Manchester United or indeed any other club uh, in appointing a, a technical director when a coach is still in place. And we must remember that Solskjaer doesn't have the job yet. So um, if they had to appoint a technical director between now and the end of the, the season, then perhaps the technical director would have a different um, point of view with regards to who the next coach of Manchester United or next permanent coach of Manchester United should be. But 
remember the most important um, employee, the most important member of any um, football department has to be the head coach stroke manager. He must be the person who um, is listened to, is acted upon his instructions um, and who is being served uh, by the other people on his staff, including the technical director, to help him to make the team successful. Now, there are examples at clubs in the past where this hasn't worked out and disputes between technical director and manager has seen the manager be sacked. Um, and one of the reasons for that, of course, is that technical director is effectively the conciliary between the dressing room and the board of directors and or chief executive. So it's usually the case the sport director will have many more conversations with the CEO than the manager ever has. And of course, we all know that in football, as in any sort of high stakes business, um, if things start to go wrong um, at the core of, or say the coal face, if you like, you want to use that analogy, then um, people tend to um, make out that it's definitely not their fault, it's someone else's fault. So usually what you get when you get a breakdown in relationship or communication between the technical director and a, and a head coach is when things aren't going well on the pitch and the technical director is giving his opinion as to why it's not going well on the pitch. And usually that's the manager's fault. Um, and of course, having the ear of the chief executive and, and having the, you have to say, the, the respect of the chief executive and or board members, then that's when it can go wrong for a manager. But... Um, Clubs, some clubs have been incredibly successful without technical directors. You know, Manchester United never had one under Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, but mo the, 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 most huge clubs, most very big clubs do have one. Um, and look at even, uh, you know, Brighton Hove Albion recently appointed the FA's technical director, Dan Ashworth. Uh, he started work there earlier than expected because um, Les Reed was then appointed to the FA. And so he's now been working uh, at the Amex Stadium uh, for Brighton for the past, I think, couple of weeks. Um, and obviously Brighton have a very um, established manager in Chris Hutton, who I know for a fact was looking forward to Dan Ashworth coming in uh, and working with him because of his track record at England and also the fact that um, he feels that uh, he could do with that extra help. So to answer our listeners' question... Um, in the case of Manchester United, it's it's still there to be shown that first of all they appoint one, and secondly who gets the the, the job as head coach. Um, but I think generally to answer the question, uh, it should not be uh, an obstacle uh, to appoint a technical director after a um, head coach is appointed. And indeed, of course, we know that Arsenal, having uh, sacked or have Sven missing having left, are now looking for one as well with Unai Emery firmly ensconced. So you know, you've got two situations at two of the biggest clubs in England now where um, that uh, circumstance exists. Well, let's, let's break it down. We, we know Manchester United need uh, someone with football expertise, uh, a depth of football knowledge and contacts in the game as a director of the club. They don't have that at the moment. So the idea of appointing a football director makes sense, full stop. And, um, and that is one of the one of the reasons they're going down that line. I think another important reason is to provide um, a bit of insulation for um, for the chief executive from uh, from the press and from fan criticism of his actions. So if he has a sports director in place and transfers uh, 
start to go wrong or they have problems with contracts or performances decline on the field, then the criticism doesn't necessarily go directly to Ed Woodward anymore. It will go to the new sports director, at least part of it will. Um, I, think, I think there's also, look, you, you can have a situation in a football club where the owners and the board decide to completely delegate um, authority over transfers and over um, coaching appointments and the organisation of the club to a director of football. You can have that. It doesn't happen very often. Um, and if you're not having that, I think it's a misconception to think that um, it would be a mistake to appoint a manager or even to go ahead with the current manager and bring a director of football in for the, for the first time. Because unless that director of football has complete authority, it's going to be a, a, a collective process anyway in terms of changing coach. And um, the idea that the director of football has to have that control and will be the, the, the sole person doing so, I think just isn't realistic in most football clubs. And it's certainly not realistic at Manchester United. Um, you know, as we've said many times, the club is run for profit. It's not run um, primarily for success on the field. The Glazers see it as a money-making exercise. Um, trophies are part of that money-making exercise, but not necessarily an essential part of it. If you delegate full control over the most expensive element of running the club, which is hiring, firing staff, um, buying and selling players, um, deciding on salaries, then you're obviously going to hurt the bottom line if you get the wrong person into that position. Um, you know, final point would be obviously the dream scenario for Manchester United would be that the next manager of the club uh, is there for a decade or more, that they get the appointment right and the, the results come with it um, and the trophies come with it and everyone's happy. Um, and then it might seem a bit bizarre that they, they appointed the manager and a, and a director of football afterwards. But realistically, in the modern game, um, it's unusual for a manager to last more than four years at a top club. So in a sense, you could, you could have Solskjaer, for example, being given the role on a permanent basis, a director of football come in to help him. And then you could look to appoint a director of football who is sympathetic to the way Solskjaer is working. Uh, and then and, and also get a director of football who's sympathetic to the way Solskjaer's working, but also has his own um, strategy further down the line, should you need to change the coach and, and then be able to take a greater role in the, in the appointment of the next coach. So I, don't, I, so I don't think any of these things are necessarily um, contradictory. Um, and, you know, there was, there was a debate over this with the previous manager and whether a director of football should come in then. And... Mourinho wanted, was, was prepared, was actually pushing for a director of football, as you've seen evidenced in his, his comments in, in Qatar recently, talking about the importance of that to the structure, very much emphasising the lack of one as a reason things went against him. Um, but he didn't want just any director of football to come in. He wanted one that he felt he could work with, which, is, which was the rational approach and would not necessarily have been detrimental to the club. Um, had they still wanted Mourinho as, as manager at the time, had this happened, for example, in the in the first year of his tenure, they could have appointed a man to help him to to have 
you would expect to have more effectiveness in the transfer market and help organise the club in that way. And also appointed a guy who, who had a good um, track record at other clubs and had the capabilities to make changes when they were required, if, if and when Mourinho left, would be able to assist in the process of replacing him, even though uh, Mourinho approved of him as, uh, during the time he was manager. It's... Um, I think it's where the paycheck's coming from is important here, whatever the relationships and loyalties are. Um, ultimately, the director of football, his long-term status at the club and a club of Manchester United's level where he's going to be paid very well depends on satisfying uh, the directors first and foremost, the owners first and foremost. So ultimately, uh, at crisis points, they're going to go down the, the owner's line. And I, I don't think it's any coincidence that you see... Um, a number of uh, people in football, prominent names, uh, directors of football, other clubs across Europe, jockeying for that position and allowing their names to be linked with it um, because it, it's an attractive uh, job to have. Um, you know, they, they, are the, they have the third highest revenue on the, the recent uh, Deloitte Football Money League of any club in Europe um, and they are one of the... The, the greatest clubs by reputation in football. So it's not hard to um, to have uh, top guys wanting to do the job, regardless of the circumstances in which you initially ask them to come in and, and start working for them. OK, this is a question from Samurai Jack, but I think it's important. Ian, will Pochettino make a good number three to Oli and Mickey Phelan? <laughs> well, I think this probably um, sums up the current glee <clears throat> in uh, the Salford part of Manchester with regards to how things are going. Um, I appreciate the, uh, the irony and the humour of it. Um, yeah, and I think we both know that, uh, all three of us know that Poch, I think, will probably be- get a job offer better than uh, number three at Manchester United uh, <laughs> this summer. Um Although, although I am told, uh, I am told that Daniel Levy is determined not to allow him to go to another Premier League club, but maybe more lenient about him leaving to go abroad so they can't come back to haunt Tottenham Hotspur. But I suppose it's number three at Man United. You could, maybe you could make a case for that. <laughs> okay, another question from Samurai Jack: Why did Pox advisors not wait before signing the new contract? Did they not know Zidane was going to take a sabbatical? Is it not their job to know this? Well, they obviously knew that the the Real Madrid job, there was a strong possibility that it would open up. Um, Remember, Zidane was close to... Zidane elected to resign. Um, Had he not won the Champions League final, um, Florentino Perez was seriously considering of of moving him out anyway. He was thinking about changing... uh, manager at the, the club regardless, as he was almost in, entirely throughout Zidane's reign. It's the great irony of, of Zidane's three Champions Leagues is that every season he was in charge, Florentino was considering whether he needed to change him at the end of that season um, before he'd actually uh, won the, the Holy Grail of European football. So yes, they were aware and yes, they knew it was a possibility. The argument from Pochettino's camp is that the the new contract was signed to uh, get his assistants a significant pay rise. Um, He felt they they needed to be rewarded uh, for their time at the club. And obviously, um, the 
the strategy there is if you put the assistants on a higher contract before they move um, elsewhere, then the assistants have greater bargaining power on what their salary will be when they move. So that could have been a, um, you know, a, a generous, uh, done with generous intent on Pochettino's part. And you can imagine how difficult it would be to get pay rises for assistance from, from Daniel Levy. Um, I, I think the other element here is uh, he already had a long-term contract. Yes, they extended the terms of it, but it wasn't the case that had he not signed that new contract, he'd have been free to move to Madrid or elsewhere. He would still have been under contract. They would have still had a uh, negotiation process involved in, in paying a uh, compensa compensation package from Madrid to Tottenham uh, to to get him out. And, and that was always within... Uh, Pochettino and his advisors thinking we're, we're not going to be allowed to leave for free it's, it's going to be complicated there will be compensation involved therefore uh, new contract or no new contract it, 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 you, can't, you can't delete that from the thinking. Their expectation and this is where you could, you could question um, the reasoning and, and ask about the naivety of the, of the situation was that they would be allowed to go. They thought Levy would, um, seeing that it was Real Madrid, uh, seeing the dimension of the club that was being offered to Pochettino, the opportunity to move to uh, the biggest club in Spain, he would he would bend and allow that to happen. Um, as Ian was mentioning, the idea that he moved outside England, so you, you, you take the, the possibility of a Manchester United move or a Chelsea move, as was being discussed at the time, um, out of the picture. You get him into uh, another league, which is less embarrassing for Levy. They thought that would be a, a help. Um, and they obviously felt from their discussions with Madrid that Madrid were prepared to put the money on the table to make it happen. Um, but I think their miscalculation was how um, resistant Levy would be and, and the fact that he wasn't prepared to do it at any price. Um, so if you see the discussions now about how much it will cost to get them out and the discussion is they'll have to pay the full value of the contract um, to to extract them um, with some some briefing from Tottenham that Levy wouldn't even ex accept that and, and still make it difficult and ask for more money. Um, so yes, they, they, they clearly misjudged the situation and that they didn't get what they wanted from it, but I'm not sure that the, the, the signing of a new contract actually made that much difference to the eventual outcome here. I think that he would have been stuck and I think Levy would have resisted the move regardless. Well, Duncan wrote a fascinating column in the Daily Record at the weekend regarding Ray Faria and his move to Qatar and Duhail Club. Um, Duncan, this is a guy who's extremely talented, who's won everything you can win alongside Jose Mourinho in Europe. It seems like an odd move for a man of his standing to move to the Middle East. Has he basically just gone for the money? Well, obviously you don't move to Qatar without being uh, well remunerated for the move. So there is, there's a, there is a financial factor involved. Um, the point of the column was to try and answer that question. Why does a, a, a man who's won 20 titles... Uh, major titles in tandem with Jose Mourinho, who was who was central to that managerial team, to its methods, to the mentality with which they played. 
and more importantly, had a lot of big offers from European clubs. Why does he choose to go to Qatar? So Benfica offered him the job. Sporting Lisbon offered him the job. So two of the three major clubs in his home country. He previously had offers from FC Porto. Um, had he waited until the next time FC Porto needed a coach, that would be an obvious fit for him. Uh, in France, in the French League, Monaco offered him the job before uh, Thierry Henry was appointed. Uh, Bordeaux and Nantes um, also in for him. Uh, then in England, Aston Villa wanted him to come in as manager. Southampton approached him. He was long-listed by Arsenal. You know, there, there wasn't really any question that uh, eventually um, a European club job of, of that kind of standard, uh, even higher, uh, would, would open up for him. Um, so why go to Qatar? Is it just for the cash? That's not what I uh, understand. It's, uh, the project is far more complex uh, and interesting and appealing, and it goes beyond the club um, uh, Al-Duhail that he's managing. So the, the club aspect of it is uh, retain the Qatari League title um, and uh, try and win the Asian Champions League. Um, important factor here is the club is owned by the Emir of Qatar. So the Emir of Qatar is the owner of Paris Saint-Germain. Al-Duhail is his, his main club in Qatar. So he's driving the project. Um, you'll remember that uh, when Paris Saint-Germain changed coach at the end of last season, that uh, decision was made by the Emir of Qatar. He overrode a uh, sports director and president of the club who'd spent the whole season planning and uh, developing plans to replace Unai Emery. Um, so he'd done a, a whole year of work and he came in and did it himself, brought to Thomas Tuchel in. Um, and, and that's basically the process that's happened here. The Emir of Qatar drove this. What he wanted wasn't just a man to head up his team. He wanted a top European coach to work with um, a group of Qatar national team players who are important to the host nation for the 2022 uh, World Cup. He wants to build that team up so they can be competitive in the tournament. You know, the, the big fear for Qatar is they host the World Cup and then they lose all three games as hosts and have the worst performance of any host nation at World Cup. They're, 90, they're ranked 93 in the world at the moment, so you have to say that that is not um, an impossible prospect. So what do you do? Do you hire a very good coach for the Qatar national team? You can do that, and I think eventually they will do that. But do you get more effect by placing a top coach in with one of the club sides, which has 10 national team players and maybe more coming along, and get him to work with them every day for, for the next well, the contracts for a year and a half? Um, so impart those methods with the amount of, of training time you have and allow th those methods um, to disseminate to other national team players when they, they meet uh, with, with them. Have them work with your, your youth um, levels at, at Duhail to maybe generate a couple more national team players from the young talents you've got. And then, if he does well, if he gets results, you have a potential um, national team manager ready to go. So you promote him from uh, the Duhail job to Qatar national team, closer to the World Cup, to allow him to work with all the national team players. 
So from the Emir's point of view, he's hiring a top talent, not just for his club, but potentially solved the problem of who the, the World Cup manager is going to be. And they've, they've had an extensive search for that role. Um, so that obviously makes the, the job more attractive to someone like Faria, who's, who's taking his first managerial position in that he's, not, he's, he's given total support from the owner of the club he's working for. He doesn't have any complications of um, a divided board and doubts about whether he's the right man for the job. The most powerful man in the country has appointed him with a specific plan and given him the mandate uh, to work on it. And he gets to develop players for the national team. And he has the prospect, if he does well, of being uh, Qatar's manager at the World Cup. And uh, being manager of the host nation at a World Cup is a, is a particularly prominent position. Um, so there are a lot of um, added attractions there that go beyond the financial aspect and uh, the, the, the persuasion required to get him to, to, to select that position was significant. It took him a long time to come to this decision um, and it, it was because the project as a whole, on top of the financial terms involved, was appealing to him that he took it. All my encounters with Rui Faria over the years, um, when he's working with Josie Mourinho, uh, uh, he has always come across as a very intelligent, articulate, a thoughtful man who who doesn't make any decision um, uh, <clears throat> in any way sort of uh, rashly. He he likes to consider things and then put in uh, to action what he intends to do. So to go to Qatar for me, there are three. Very, very good and, I'd say, clever reasons for that. Um, first of all, um, he's going to somewhere where his weekend weekend results are not going to be analysed by the entire European press. So even though he probably will have good results uh, and deserves the credit for them, if he did have, he did lose the championship and or, or whatever, the results weren't great, it's not going to adversely affect his future prospects of employment in European football <clears throat> because it'll largely go unnoticed. Unlike one Thierry Henry, who managed three months at Monaco, and now I'm sure he'll be given another chance, but anyone employing Thierry now will, will, will be looking at his experience at Monaco and thinking, am I taking a risk here? So that's the first thing. Uh, the, the second two are kind of combined. One, any, anyone who um, has um, an interest in uh, progressing their career in football right now, and I think probably for the next at least decade, would be well-placed by having good contacts in Qatar because they are hosting the World Cup, as we know, in 2022. Um, they have um, a lot of interest in terms of sponsorship in football throughout the world, therefore have a lot of influence. And of course, they are the owners of Paris Saint-Germain. And what better place could you be than working for the Emir of Qatar's own club, in his own country, where he probably pays more attention to those games than he does to PSG games, impressed there. And as we know, PSG is an ongoing project for the Qatar um, ruling family, and they want it to succeed. So it, we, I wouldn't be surprised if Rui Faria was at some point made manager of Paris Saint-Germain. They've changed the manager, I think, five times in the last six years. So, um, you know, that's a job that opens up quite quickly. Um, and with any sort of uh, <clears throat> sense of not getting near near to winning the Champions League, a manager's um, prospects there are greatly diminished. So um, I think Rui's been very clever 
very astute in the way that he has um, worked out his career plan, at least for the next couple of years. And I suspect uh, will be successful and we'll see him in a big job in Europe uh, not too long from now. I'd agree with your analysis of, uh, of Faria's character and the, the thoughtfulness with which he works and the, the, the importance of this, this position to him. And I wouldn't rule out that possibility um, for, the reasons, for the reasons you identify. And I would, I would note that Duhail, um, I've been trying to sign uh, Shoya Nakajimi uh, from, from the Portuguese Lub, uh, League, um, one of the top Japanese internationals as a replacement for uh, their injured number 10. And that will be, a, if they get that through, that will be a very significant transfer fee involved, um, showing the commitment to making the club succeed. And they're also trying to get um, and are close to, I think, securing uh, the transfer of Medi Benatia from Juventus, um, which again is a you know high status signing of a player who is at one of the top clubs in Europe and for a long time was linked with um, with top teams in the Premier League um, and a significant investment both in transfer fee and and wages to strengthen that squad. So it's a it's a sign of the backing um, that. Faria has um, going into that new club. Okay, and now it's time for one of my favourite segments on the podcast. It's the Donkey Awards. And today we're going to look at the category of the Tactics Tim Sherwood Award for Absurd Managerial Pronouncements. Ian, let's have your nominations. The nominations this week, Johnny, are Mr. Neil Warner. I think we'll all remember forever his chat about Brexit when, in fact, he's got a full squad of foreign players who might end up leaving the country. Secondly, we have Maurizio Sarri for, well, a, a series of bizarre uh, things he said recently, but in particular, um, digging out Aidan Hazard before the second leg of the Carabao Cup final, saying he's not a leader. And last but not least... Our favourite, who we've already spoken about in this particular podcast, Mercy Pochettino, for his pronouncement that trophies only boost egos and therefore winning is not important by inference. And I now present you to Dr. Duncan Castles to announce the winner. A very, a very strong uh, field this week. I am tempted to go after Neil Warnock for um, his idiocy, but at least in his part, it was predictable idiocy. If you were going to expect any manager to make such absurd pronouncements on Brexit, we know which one we choose from the from the Premier League list. Pochettino, some great comments, but I'm going to let him off because I see this as part of a strategic attempt by the Argentinian to extract himself from Daniel Levy and move on to brighter pastures, and you can understand that. So it has to go to Maurizio Sarri for repeated excellence in this field. Any manager who can uh, say that he has no replacement for Jorginho when he has N'Golo Kante in the squad, follow that up by saying uh, that his, his entire team are extremely difficult to motivate. And then as an encore, go after the best player in his squad who actually wants to uh, leave elsewhere and who his club are, are trying desperately to convince to sign a new contact contract and say he's not leadership material. There is no doubt he isn't uh, fully deserving of a donkey. Okay, fantastic. We have our donkey award winner and it's Maurizio Sarri. So you can expect uh, a video with that wonderful, wonderful image of Duncan atop 
the Oscar statue looking fabulous, may I add. <laughs> Duncan, you, you do like that image, don't you? I don't, I don't feel like that um, I've gone too far with that. I think you've gone too far. I especially think you've gone too far with your tweet about me being the creator of this award. So <laughs> <laughs> well, I had nothing to do with the creation and, and the person who was the creator is the person who sent out that tweet. Print the legend, mate. That's what I've always said. Ian McGarry told me that. <laughs> right, it's time to slam this particular transfer window shut. But fear not, we will be back on Friday, the day after the transfer window closes, to fulfil all your podcasting needs with news and analysis of what's going on. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own transfer window official account at Transfer Podcast. I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane, and most importantly, our pundits are at Duncan Castles and at Garbo SJ. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review, as this helps us reach as many listeners as possible. See you on Friday. Thanks for listening.